Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Just go to Indeed.com slash Peter before March 31st to claim your $75 credit. Well, earlier this afternoon, the Federal Reserve surprised nobody by announcing that it was leaving interest rates unchanged at zero but indicated that liftoff is still scheduled to happen in March, although nothing is set in stone. Everything is data dependent, although if the Federal Reserve really was, depending on the data, they would have raised interest rates a long time ago, and they would now be much higher than zero. The markets, though, initially were very happy with the Fed's announcement. They actually built on the lead that they had going in. The Dow Jones was up about 400 points, a little more than that, after the Fed's announcement came out. In fact, the market was strong all day following that big reversal that we had on Monday. We gave up some of those gains on Tuesday with a very volatile session, but today it was up right out of the gate. In fact, it looked like it might have been a down day because Microsoft reported earnings after the closing bell on Tuesday, which actually beat expectations, but the stock tanked about 5 or 6% immediately after that. But after the conference call, I guess they had some upbeat assessments of the future and we had a reversal. And so the market opened with a very positive bias and that continued until Jerome Powell actually started talking at the press conference. And somewhere midway through, that's when the market reversed. The Dow surrendered all of its gains. It ended up closing down 129 points, although at one point it was down better than 300 points, meaning we had almost an 800-point or maybe an 800-point decline from the highs to the lows. In fact, all of the major markets closed the day 
on their low close for the entire correction. We didn't take out the lows from Monday morning, but we closed lower than we did on Monday or Tuesday. The Dow is now down about 7.5% from its high. S&P 500 down 9.7%, so just above that official 10% correction threshold. The NASDAQ down 15.7%, now closer to a bear market than a correction. Russell 2000, 19.5%, barely hanging on to correction territory, although it did officially move into bear market territory on Monday, even though it didn't close there, but it probably will close there. My bet would be this week. But again, the most speculative stocks in the NASDAQ having the hardest time. Again, look at the ARC Innovation Fund down again today, closing at its low of the move down. The ARC Innovation Fund now down 57% from its high, and it may have some more problems tomorrow. We had the news from Tesla after the close. The earnings actually beat on the top and bottom. The initial reaction, though, somewhat like Microsoft, was a sell-off in Tesla. As I'm recording this podcast, Tesla has paired most of its losses, and now it's about unchanged or down maybe half a percent from where it settled regular trading. But I have a feeling that this may not be the same situation as Microsoft. After all, Microsoft is an enormous company when it comes to actual earnings. And even though the stock is expensive, it trades at a PE of around 31, 32. I mean, that's too rich for my blood, but based on a lot of other tech stocks, it's value. But if you look at something like Tesla, Tesla is well north of a hundred times earnings. And in the environment that we're in now, where all of the high multiple names are being taken out behind the barn and shot It's amazing that Tesla hasn't made the trip yet because Tesla is only down about 25% from its peak and it had a spectacular move up. So Tesla traders could end up being inspired by Microsoft and bid Tesla higher in the after hours trading. So it may open higher, who knows, tomorrow. But again, unlike Microsoft, I think it will be hard for Tesla to sustain those gains because I think there's a lot of people who wouldn't want to look that gift horse in the mouth and take advantage of that opportunity to sell. So to me, there's a lot of downside risk in Tesla. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we get a different reaction in Tesla than we did in Microsoft because it doesn't really matter that they beat earnings. Because even with the beat, the stock is still massively overvalued. What's more important now than the earnings is the Fed and interest rates and the direction of monetary policy and the discount rate that's going to be applied to those future earnings and the fact that a lot of investors don't want to gamble on the come anymore. They want to buy more of a sure thing in a value-oriented stock that is already delivering high earnings and paying high dividends, not speculate on a high-growth company that may or may not deliver those earnings into the future. And if Tesla really breaks down, that is going to be a big, big problem for the ARK Innovation Fund because it's 10% of the fund. And if we really start to see that ETF accelerate, the redemptions are going to accelerate. More people are going to want out. After all, ARK Innovation Fund is already down three times as much as the NASDAQ. And that's a lot of pain for most people to take. 
And if they want to throw in the towel and there's redemptions, Kathy Wood has no choice but to sell these stocks. As much as she's in love with these stocks, she has no choice. She's got to sell because her clients want their money back and she's got to sell. And I think other hedge funds, especially the ones that specialize in short selling, they're like sharks. They're going to smell blood. They're going to know that Kathy Wood is going to be selling stocks. They know what she owns and they're going to short what's in her portfolio so they can cover when she has to sell. So they can sell those stocks now, drive the price down. And then when Kathy Wood has to bail, she'll be selling at an even lower price and that'll let the shorts cover. So they will front run her liquidations. But all of this is going to feed on itself and create like a cascade effect, a vicious circle, the opposite of the virtuous circle that drove the price of these stocks up as money was flowing into the ARK Innovation Fund. And then the inflows were used to bid up the stocks to increase performance, driving more inflows. Now it works in reverse. The weak performance results in outflows, which causes the weak stocks to be sold. They get even weaker and that prompts even more outflows. And of course, as I said, the shorts start piling on because they smell some quick profits and they jump all over her portfolio and it just makes it that much worse. One market though that held up strong today was the oil market. We almost traded $88 a barrel earlier this morning. That's the new seven or eight year high. We got to 87.95 was the high I saw. We closed, I think we're settled now at 87.09, up about a buck and a half. All the oil stocks were making new 52-week highs today. So again, the rotation is going on beneath the surface. And there were a lot of stocks in the value end of the spectrum that managed to finish the day with gains. Although the European markets were closed before the U.S. market reversed. So we may see some selling tomorrow in Europe in line with what happened in the U.S. But again, there's a lot of noise in the market right now. But what's happening beneath the surface is extremely constructive if you're on the right side of this rotation, and that is the move out of growth and momentum into value and dividend-paying stocks. I made that move years ago, so I'm just waiting for the market to come to me as opposed to moving with the herd. So I've been sitting back and patiently waiting for the market to come to me, and now the herd is moving in that direction. Gold prices also were south on the day, price of gold was down about $20, 15 to $20 before the Fed announcement. And then when the markets rolled over and Powell started to talk, gold made new lows, ending down about 30 bucks on the day. We closed at about $1,820 an ounce, so still comfortably above $1,800, although we were above $1,850 yesterday, but we weren't really able to hold that level. But the more important support, I think, is 1800 At some point, we're going to take out the resistance. In fact, the traders continue to ignore very bullish news for gold as they remain focused on the Fed tightening monetary policy and forgetting about the fact that even though they're going to tighten it, it's never going to be tight money. It's going to be loose money. It just will be less loose than it is now. In fact, even Powell admitted that during the Q&A, which I will get to relatively soon during this podcast. But traders are overlooking very bullish news for gold. For example, there was no reaction whatsoever this morning to the release of the December 
merchandise trade deficit. And I've been telling people on this podcast that I was expecting a $100 billion deficit sometime before the end of the year. And that's another prediction that I got right. The December deficit clocked in at $101 billion in one month. That blew away the expectation for $95.1 billion. In fact, adding insult to injury, they even revised upward the prior month's deficit from 97.8 to 98. But this is a significant milestone. I don't really like to use the word milestone because usually that connotes something good. This is something not good at all, right? This is a terrible thing. You don't want to break this record, right? It's like, you know, a quarterback breaking the record for most interceptions thrown in a game or a running back breaking the record for most fumbles in a game, right? You don't want that record. Well, you don't want to have the record for the biggest trade deficit. In fact, you don't want to have the record for a $101 billion deficit in one month. The problem is the record's not going to stand. We're probably going to break it in January. And what's probably even worse than the $100 billion milestone for a monthly record, we also set the record for an annual goods trade deficit we had $1.08 trillion deficit in goods for the year 2021. Let that number sink in. $1.08 trillion in one year. Never have we had a trade deficit in a year in goods that even came near $1 trillion, and now we topped it. And remember, it was just five years ago when Donald Trump was elected president and his signature campaign issue was to make America great again by shrinking our trade deficit. That was what got him elected. And I remember early on in his administration, you had all these Republican cheerleaders were on television talking about how these great trade deals that Trump was negotiating was going to result in a boom in American manufacturing and American exports and our trade deficits were going to go down. Every one of those guys was wrong. I was the only Republican, you know, if you want to call me a Republican because I'm a libertarian, but I've been a member of the Republican Party. I ran for Senate as a Republican, but I was the only one who was out there saying BS about those claims. I said the trade war would backfire, that America would lose, and that the trade deficits would be bigger when the war ended than when it began. And I was right. And when Donald Trump left office, the trade deficits were much bigger than they were when he took office. And that trend continues in motion. And now they've exploded off the charts to the point where we're now running a trillion dollar a year deficit, which also shows you that the real problem isn't a shortage of goods. It's a surplus of money because we're really importing more goods than ever before. Sure, some of that trillion is because we're paying higher prices for those goods, but there's also more stuff here. But the problem is we're not making this stuff. We're having to import it and we're printing all this money. But imagine what would have happened to consumer prices in America if we couldn't rely on a trillion dollars worth of imports? What if we were like any other country and our consumption was limited by our production and we had to spend the money the Fed printed here at home? Can you imagine how much higher 
prices would have gone, well, pretty soon, that's not going to be our imagination. That's going to be our reality because the dollar has to crash under the weight of these enormous trade deficits and the gold market should sense this. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Gold should be rising based on these trade deficits. Instead, it's falling. And, you know, when Powell gave his opening remarks, his prepared speech, and talked about the issues that the Fed is dealing with and the issues that are facing the U.S. economy, he did not even mention the exploding trade deficits. Now, he normally doesn't even talk about that, but you would think that that would be a paramount issue for the Fed to consider because it has major implications on the value of the dollar, on inflation, because he's claiming he wants to fight inflation. Well, if we have these massive trade deficits that could weigh on the dollar, that's going to make the inflation problem worse. But it also reflects massive economic imbalances. And at the heart of those imbalances is the Fed's low interest rate policy. It's these artificially low interest rates that are driving these excessive trade deficits. And it is a huge problem that the Fed doesn't even concede exists. In fact, Powell didn't mention the exploding budget deficits and the potential problem that that imposes. He also didn't talk about the enormity of the debt, the fact that he is now embarking on a tightening campaign, and he didn't even mention as an issue how higher debt service costs might impact the economy when so many people and government entities that have debt have to start paying more and more money to service that debt, and meaning they have less and less money for other things. He didn't mention anything about asset bubbles and how his less loose monetary policy may deflate those bubbles. In fact, it wasn't until the last question in the Q&A where one of the reporters said something about asset prices and whether or not he was concerned that there could be a problem for the economy if stock prices or real estate prices went down. And he basically said no. He wasn't worried at all. He said the reason he's not worried is because households are in such good shape. Well, they're not in great shape. It only looks like they're in great shape because they own all these inflated assets. And so their balance sheets look good because their assets have been inflated by these overpriced stocks and real estate. Well, what happens when that deflates? Balance sheets don't look so good. And what happens when interest rates go up and now their debt service costs go up, now their income doesn't look so good. So he is relying on a false benchmark if he thinks that the average household is in good shape and therefore it doesn't matter if stock prices and real estate prices go down. The only reason that they are in good shape is because those asset prices went up. And the minute they go down, they're going to be in horrible shape. But one of the things that Powell said or didn't say that I think really sparked the sell-off and I think will continue to drive stocks lower in the days and weeks ahead, unless the Fed is going to reverse course again and try to back its way out of this. And I think to an extent it tried that in its prepared remarks because 
the Fed specifically mentioned that its primary tool for tightening policy was going to be adjustments to the Fed funds rate and kind of putting the balance sheet reduction, quantitative tightening on a back burner. And so initially when the markets heard the prepared remarks and there really wasn't anything about the quantitative tightening and the pace at which that would take place, the fact that the Fed was putting the primary emphasis on raising rates, I think that initially may have been interpreted as the Fed walking back a little bit its so-called hawkish talk. But once he started talking, it became obvious that Powell is on a mission to withdraw the accommodation. And he is laser focused on doing that. And he is basically living in a fantasy world as he's doing it. Because what Powell went out of his way to state over and over again was how strong the economy was. I mean, historically strong unprecedented. In fact, you would think that he was Donald Trump running for re-election, talking about how we have like the greatest economy ever, the strongest labor market ever. And he said, you know, we have inflation above 2%. So given the fact that the economy is much stronger than it was when the Fed started raising rates, you know, back in 2014 or whenever that was, we have a much stronger economy with a much stronger labor market and we have higher inflation that this time the Fed is going to have to move quicker, that it can't take the same policy that it had in the past in the future when the economy today is so much different than it was back then. Now, what Powell has confused is a bubble for strength. We don't have a stronger economy now than we had in 2014. We simply have a bigger bubble. And the reason we have a bigger bubble is because the Fed pursued even more reckless monetary policy leading up to inflate this bubble than it pursued to inflate the bubble that popped in 2008. So all of this gains in GDP, all of the strength in employment is specifically the result of the inflation that the Fed has created, the artificially low interest rates and all the stimulus. And so the minute the Fed withdraws that stimulus, that illusion of strength is going to evaporate. So Powell thinks that because the economy is so strong that it doesn't need the Fed to support it anymore. But what Powell doesn't understand is it's only strong because it's standing on those supports. It's like Powell, again, is under the impression that the Fed put training wheels on this bike. The economy is this bike and it was in trouble. It was shaky. And so the Fed put these training wheels on and now the bike is coasting along and it's time to remove the training wheels because they don't need them anymore. But what Powell doesn't realize is the training wheels are the only wheels, right? You take those training wheels away and there's no wheels and the bike is just going to crash. That's what Powell doesn't seem to understand. But the markets now believe that Powell is committed to this course of hiking rates at a much faster pace than they did last time and that the Fed is going to shrink the balance sheet. Even though Powell said that primary reduction would come from a runoff, meaning that as bonds mature, the Fed will simply not roll them over as opposed to outright sales into the market. He didn't rule those sales out. And in fact, what Powell did say 
is that he wants the balance sheet to pretty much be exclusively U.S. Treasuries, which means that most of the runoff is going to come from mortgage-backed securities, which is going to be particularly problematic for the housing market. And we've got a massive bubble in housing thanks to the Fed. And one of the reasons the bubble got so big was because the Fed was buying up all these mortgages and keeping the rates artificially low. Well, if the Fed is not going to be a buyer anymore of those mortgages and in fact becomes a seller, that's going to widen the spread. Mortgage rates are going to rise. They've already started to rise. They could rise much more and that could prick the bubble in housing. And we already seen that movie and we know how it ends. Except as I said before, sequels are always worse than the original. And the same thing is going to be true in this case. The sequel to 2008 is going to be much worse because it's going to be a much bigger financial crisis that will morph into a U.S. sovereign debt crisis and a currency crisis. It's a new year and you deserve a fresh start in all parts of your life, even at work. Take your team to the next level with a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. That's Indeed. Indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you need when you need it. A short list of quality candidates as fast as possible. Because on Indeed, you can do it all. Attract, interview, and hire. So don't struggle on your own to find quality candidates. Indeed can help you hire the right people right now. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process so you can find the talent with the skills you need using tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description, and you can even invite them to apply right away. That perfect job candidate is out there. You just need Indeed to help you find them. And finding great talent doesn't have to be your second job. Outsource that to Indeed. In fact, with Indeed Instant Match, over 90% of employers get quality candidates as soon as they sponsor their job posts, according to Indeed data. Candidates you invite to apply through Indeed Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than those who see it in search alone, according to Indeed data. So get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com Peter. That's Indeed.com Peter. This offer is valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. And in fact, as Powell was talking about the Fed tightening policy, he admitted that what the Fed was going to be doing was moving from a highly accommodative policy to a substantially less accommodative policy, which is what I've been saying. They're not going from loose money to tight money. They're just going from extremely loose money to loose money that's not nearly as loose as it was before. That's what he's saying. But how are you going to fight inflation by doing that? I've said repeatedly, you can't put out a fire by throwing less gasoline on top of it. You're still going to fuel that fire. You have to stop throwing gasoline. You have to start putting water on it. But if all we do is go from extreme accommodation to substantially less extreme accommodation, but the Fed remains accommodative, the inflation problem is going to get worse. Then what Powell said is he said, eventually... Like who knows when in the far off future, but eventually he said that we may even go to a policy that is no longer accommodative. Now, he didn't say it would be restrictive. He just said that maybe eventually in the way distant future, we might eventually get to some kind of neutral policy where we're neither accommodative nor restrictive. Now, if that is the Fed's 
game plan to tackle inflation, there's no way. Inflation is going to run into the end zone and spike the ball. There's no way the Fed's going to bring inflation down with that kind of policy. But again, it doesn't matter to the markets. All the markets here is the Fed's going to be less loose. The Fed is on this course of moving interest rates higher and of printing less money. And that's all that matters. And in fact, what Powell was actually saying was that because the economy is much stronger than it was in the past, the Fed can be tougher when it comes to rate hikes because it's not really stronger. It's just a bigger bubble. Even a smaller pin would prick it. That's what Powell doesn't even get. It will take fewer rate hikes. It will take a smaller reduction in the balance sheet to prick this bubble. In fact, it may not take any rate hikes. The bubble may deflate simply on the talk that the rate hikes are coming. Remember, we're not getting the first rate hike until March. Who knows how much lower the U.S. stock market could be by then? Who knows how much weaker the economic data might be by then? And maybe the economy won't look so strong to the Fed when it's time to raise rates, which is why they may not even do it because Powell continued to reiterate that, well, it's all about the data. But what I thought was really ridiculous is he was asked about whether or not the Fed is going to do a 50-point rate hike raise for liftoff to start off with 50 to kind of front load the rate hikes a little bit. And he was also asked about the balance sheet reduction. When would the Fed start that? I mean, when was it planning on beginning that? Was it going to be the summer? I mean, when would it start and, you know, how much? So there are a lot of questions about the timing of things and how the Fed was planning on moving forward with this policy. And Basically, all Powell said was, well, you know, I don't really know when we're going to shrink the balance sheet. He said that it was substantially larger than it needed to be, but that the reduction was going to take time right? because it's so big. It's going to take a long time. He wants to make sure it's orderly. (laughs) Yeah, good luck with that. It's impossible. And he said he doesn't really know when it's going to begin. He said it will begin when it's appropriate. Well, when the hell is that? I mean, you would think the Fed would have determined by now that it's appropriate, but apparently not. And he said that the members of the FOMC haven't even discussed this yet. So like he has no idea when they're going to start to shrink the balance sheet because it's never come up in conversation. It's kind of something that we're going to get to. I mean, really? I mean, these guys just had a two-day meeting. What do they talk about all day? Are they just talking about sports? I mean, come on. I mean, of course they've talked about shrinking the balance sheet. How could they not? Of course they've talked about when they're going to raise rates. I mean, what else could they possibly talk about? I mean, these guys are paid a lot of money to think about policy. And now Powell is saying, oh, we just wing it. We have no idea. We were just playing poker when we had those meetings. I mean, we had a party there. And I just come and I give this press conference. What people should be saying is, why is Powell lying? Why is he claiming that they never talked about this and they have no idea? Well, because he can't tell the truth. It's like, yeah, we talked about it and we're all screwed. Yeah, there's no way we could possibly do this because everything would implode. I mean, I'm sure they've had some of these conversations behind the scenes that nobody gets to know about because I can't believe for one minute they never discussed it. So the only thing that makes sense is they discussed it, but they can't talk about those discussions because of what they reveal. So they have to just pretend that they haven't given any thought. Well, that is pure BS.
Another thing, too, that doesn't make sense is Powell admitted, you know, and he's admitted this before, but he admitted that the Fed got it wrong on inflation, that the Fed thought inflation was going to be transitory. And now it's not, right? It's much higher than they thought. It's been around a lot longer than they thought. And so the Fed is going to take this into account, except how would the Fed's policy be any different if they were right on inflation? I mean, what if inflation wasn't 7%? What if inflation last year was still 2% or 2.2 or 2.5, just a little bit north of 2%? I mean, would they not be raising interest rates at all? Would they be leaving them at zero? Of course not. What the Fed is doing when it comes to rates is the bare minimum that it would have done even if it was right. The Fed was going to taper quantitative easing. It was talking about doing that eventually, even before they admitted they were wrong on inflation. We knew the Fed was going to eventually raise rates. I think the only thing that happened was we moved the rate hikes forward from maybe 2023 into 2022, because for a while, the markets didn't think the Fed was going to get around to raising rates for another year or so. And that's why Powell kept saying, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates, that raising rates are far away. So the only thing they did is take those tiny incremental quarter point rate hikes and move them forward a year. But that is not nearly enough to deal with the enormity of their miss on inflation, because we have a massive inflation problem right now that the Fed needs to take care of. And what they're planning on doing, being less loose, won't do it. We have this roaring fire and the Fed thinks they could take a break and that they don't really need to do anything about it. They could gradually try to put it out. The problem is it's going to get bigger while they're taking that approach. It's going to grow. It's going to spread. I mean, doesn't the rising oil price tell them anything? Look how much higher the price of oil is now than when they initially admitted that they made a mistake. And by the time they get around to that first quarter point rate hike, oil prices will probably be above $100 a barrel. I mean, I have been bullish on oil. I've been talking about $100 oil on this podcast for a while, and it's coming. And pretty soon we're going to be looking at $100 in the rearview mirror, and in the windshield is going to be $150 a barrel, and we are making a beeline for that. And how is the Fed going to claim it's fighting inflation as it's obviously getting worse? Now, one reporter actually asked Powell a decent question. And the question was, can the Fed raise interest rates without hurting the job market and the economy? And of course, the truthful answer is no, it can't, right? If the Fed raises interest rates, it's going to hurt. And if we raise interest rates enough to actually get rid of inflation, it's going to hurt a lot. Instead, Powell pretended that it's not going to make a difference because, again, he relied on how strong the labor market is that it can withstand higher interest rates. We've got such a strong labor market that we can't hurt it with higher rates. But one of the reasons that the labor market is so strong is because rates are so low and we have this gigantic bubble. Well, the bubble is pricked even with small rate hikes. A lot of these jobs that were created because of the bubble will disappear as the bubble deflates. And of course, those great household balance sheets that Powell thinks are so strong, well, they're going to implode too as interest rates rise and asset prices fall. So yes, the job market is going to be impacted substantially by what the Fed is doing. And in fact, I've mentioned this before, these small rate hikes are not going to do anything to reduce inflation because they're not big enough 
to actually alter behavior when it comes to savings and investment and consumption and productivity because real interest rates are going to remain negative. In fact, they're going to be even more negative as the Fed raises rates more slowly than inflation accelerates. But what they will do is bleed through the economy as higher costs because as interest rates go up, the cost of financing everything goes up. Interest rates are a component of costs for a lot of businesses, for a lot of landlords. There's a lot of debt that needs to be serviced. And as businesses and landlords have higher debt service costs, they need to recoup those costs with higher prices. And of course, consumers too, that are already struggling with higher gasoline prices and higher food prices, they're going to also be struggling with higher interest rates. You know, a lot of people have been putting their food and their gas on their credit cards. And now the interest costs of carrying that debt are going to go up. A lot of Americans may have home equity loans. The rates are going to go up there. There are still people that have adjustable rate mortgages. They're going to reset higher. There's a lot of debt out there that is going to be affected by higher interest rates. So that's going to add to the burden of the economy. But also, as food prices keep going up and utility prices keep going up and rents keep going up and insurance keeps going up, families are going to have a lot less discretionary income. And that means they can't buy a lot of things that they used to buy because they're paying so much more for the things they need. There's nothing left over for the stuff they want. But the problem is a lot of Americans earn their living in industries supplying other Americans with the stuff that they want. Well, if they can't afford that stuff anymore, well, there's no need for those jobs. So the economy is going to get hurt in many, many ways based on what the Fed has proposed doing, even though what it's proposed doing is wholly inadequate to actually solve the problem they claim they're trying to solve. If the Fed actually was serious about fighting inflation, which it claims it is, it would be raising interest rates much faster. In fact, it wouldn't be talking about raising them in March. It would have raised them at this meeting. In fact, it would have raised them long before this meeting. I've repeated this on this podcast. If the Fed could fight inflation, it would have already started. It wouldn't be talking about a future fight. It would already be knee deep in the battle. It would have started the fight before we had all these bad numbers. When it was obvious that there was a problem, it would have tried to nip it in the bud, but it didn't do that. And again, why didn't the Fed try to fight the inflation monster when it was smaller? Why didn't it try to prevent the genie from getting out of the bottle rather than scrambling to put it back in? The answer is because fighting inflation a year or two ago would have been very painful for the economy because of the effect higher interest rates would have had on the bubble. Well, if it was going to be painful to fight inflation a year or two ago, think about how much more painful it's going to be to fight it now. We have a much bigger bubble. We have a lot more debt and inflation is a lot higher. So we have a bigger monster to fight, which means we need even heavier artillery, which means even more collateral damage for an even more over leveraged economy. So the question is, if the Fed wouldn't fight inflation back then, why should we believe it's going to fight it now? I think it's still going to find a cop-out. It's going to find an excuse. Something is going to happen so the Fed can backtrack from its rhetoric and go back to adding additional accommodation instead of withdrawing it. 
And that's when it's really going to hit the fan. That's when the markets are really going to adjust. And I don't think that about face is going to be really bullish for tech stocks. I think that bubble has burst. The same thing in cryptocurrencies. I think what that's going to do is start a run on the dollar. It's going to propel the price of gold and silver to new highs. It's going to cause more people to want to get out of U.S. dollars and U.S. assets. It's going to accelerate this rotation from momentum to value from the U.S. to foreign. And more people are going to get rid of their dollars and they're going to be buying these foreign stocks and value stocks and dividend paying stocks in Asia, in Europe and emerging and developing markets outside the United States. They're going to run as fast as they can out of this burning house. And unfortunately, a lot of Americans are going to be trapped inside. They have no idea what's about to happen because they get their information from the mainstream media. They don't listen to the Peter Schiff Show podcast. They've been hearing lies for so long. They have no idea what the truth is. One of the reporters kind of forced Powell to backtrack a bit because early in the Q&A, Powell mentioned that he expected these supply chain issues to really go away. And so that was going to be one of the reasons that the Fed wouldn't have to be as aggressive with its rate hikes to fight inflation because it would get a lot of help from the supply side as supply increased. That would help keep a lid on prices. Well, later on in the Q&A, somebody called him out and mentioned what's really going on in the markets and that the CEO of one of the big car companies, it may have been GM, I'm not sure, but apparently the guy was on Fox Business talking about how this chip supply chain problem was going to go into 2023, that it wasn't going to go away right away. And he asked Powell for some numbers on what makes you think that these supply chain problems are going to go away in 2022. And then Powell kind of backtracked and said, well, you know, I, I never really said that they would go away. He said, I just said we would be making some progress. That's all, that we'll make some progress on unclogging the supply chain, but we wouldn't solve the problem. So we're going to make progress. What what does that mean? I mean, he's basically admitting that he has no idea what's going to happen. But again, it's not the supply chain that is the problem. It's the demand side. The Fed is fueling demand. Yes, supply is always constrained, particularly so when there is a pandemic and fewer people are working. But if the Fed was doing the right thing, this wouldn't be an issue because demand would be coming down with supply and prices would be in equilibrium. It's only because the Fed has pursued this reckless inflationary policy that we're showering the economy with money to buy goods that haven't been produced. But Powell kept talking about how the Fed has to be humble and nimble when it comes to these rate hikes. And that's another reason why it can't really commit to a course right now. It kind of has to roll with the punches. And I think the reason it says it needs to be humble is, you know, they've been so wrong about so many things in the past that it's time for a little humility. But that was a massive understatement. And they're even more wrong now than they were in the past. And when I think he was talking about humble and nimble, what I'm thinking is for the Fed to be even less aggressive, not that they're aggressive, but to not raise rates as much if it turns out that the economy is not as strong as they think. Now, one of the things that Powell is saying is that, well, if inflation turns out to be higher than we think, we may have to be more aggressive. And again, I would call BS on that because inflation is already much higher than they thought and they're not being more aggressive. They're pretty much acting exactly the way they would had they been right on inflation. So I think what the Fed really means, and the markets may not understand this, 
is where the Fed may make adjustments, it would be in delaying these rate hikes or maybe even reversing them because the strong economy ends up imploding because it wasn't strong, it was a bubble. Towards the end of the Q&A, Powell talked about how he hopes he's around in 25 years and he lives long enough to kind of see how everything works out. Well, you know, he's not going to have to live another 25 years to see how everything works out. I think over the next two and a half years, he'll pretty much know it worked out as a complete disaster. So he's not going to have to live another 25 years to see the catastrophic consequences of the policy he helped pursue. And I don't want to blame it all on Powell. I mean, it started with Greenspan and then it went to Bernanke and it went to Yellen and now it's on Powell. So Powell just may be at the helm when the ship goes down, but he had a lot of help in steering that ship into this precarious situation. It's just as his predecessors, they got out of Dodge. He's the one that's stuck there. He's left holding the bag when the music stops. And so he is going to have to accept the consequences. You know, I don't know why he campaigned so hard to get reappointed. I mean, the fact that he wanted to get reappointed, I mean, to me, shows that he may be more clueless than you think. Because if he actually understood all that was going on, the last thing he would want would be a second term. He would want to leave so that the problem falls on somebody else, right? He doesn't want to get the blame for this thing. So he probably actually thinks that the economy is strong. He actually thinks that he can get through this just like Yellen, Powell, and Greenspan did. He doesn't understand how badly the Fed has screwed up this economy. And he thinks that the Fed can continue to get away in the future with the policies it got away with in the past, but it can't. Remember, the only reason the Fed was able to continuously bail everything out was because they were able to operate under the pretense that inflation was too low. That was the cover that enabled all the printing and all the bailouts and all the stimulus, the argument that inflation was below 2%, and that gave the Fed extra room to continue to be easy. Oh, and by the way, we need higher inflation. Our mandate is 2% inflation, and we're below 2%, so we need to raise the rate of inflation. And so that's the justification for this policy, apart from the fact that that was total BS, because their mandate is not 2% inflation, it's price stability. They redefine stable prices as prices that go up by 2% a year. They redefine a 2% ceiling to be a 2% target, and then eventually a 2% floor. That was the Fed that did that. Congress never charged them with that mandate. They made it up as they went along because they were trying to justify extra easy monetary policy. But the real reason they needed to do it was to prop up the economy to sustain the bubbles, to prop up stock prices, to prop up real estate prices, to enable debtors to service their debt, to enable the U.S. government not to have to default on the treasury debt so that we can finance these massive twin deficits. Well, now we're at a point where the deficits are bigger than ever, the budget deficits, the trade deficits, everybody is more loaded up with debt than ever, and inflation is now 7%. So the Fed can no longer hide behind the pretense that inflation is too low and use that to justify its loose monetary policy. So what is going to be the justification for loose monetary policy in the future when inflation stays so much above their 2% target? There is no justification. Then it will be clear that all along, the Fed was solely motivated by sustaining asset bubbles and sustaining an overly 
indebted economy and federal government, and that inflation is going to run unchecked, that the Fed is never going to shrink its balance sheet. It's never going to normalize policy. And it was the belief that these things would eventually happen. That's what supported the dollar. That's what supported the long end of the bond market. It was confidence that the Fed would eventually rein all this in and unwind all this policy. And the U.S. economy was going to emerge stronger as a result when everybody realizes that was just pure BS, right? Well, then the Fed can no longer maintain this charade. And then the party's over. Foreigners are going to dump their dollars. The dollar's going to crash. It's going to take the long end of the bond market with it. And this whole house of cards that the Fed has spent over a decade building is going to come crumbling down. (music) 